Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Mika Simmons, and welcome to the Happy Vagina podcast. Coming up, we have Chloe McIntosh, original co-founder of furniture company Made.com, who's now moved on to found the phenomenal sexual wellness platform Karma Lab. But before we jump into the intimacy space, I'd love to tell you just a little bit about our sponsors today. Bondara. Want to spice up your sex life or discover more pleasurable solo stimulation? then Bondara is the place to go. One of the UK's leading sex toy retailers with over 4,000 products to explore and discreetly delivered to your door, you're sure to find what you desire at bondara.co.uk. Bondara, for breathtaking orgasms and more. Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who have made a difference in women's health, equality, and relationships. Each week, we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also to entertain and enlighten. And this week on The Happy Vagina podcast, I cannot tell you how excited I am that we have Chloe McIntosh joining us, founder of sexual wellness platform Karma, who are on a mission to transform sexual education and exploration. Prior to founding Karma, Chloe was chief creative officer at the Soho House Group, where she led the digital transformation. And before that, she co-founded furniture company Made.com, which was one of the fastest growing tech companies in the UK. Chloe McIntosh, is there anything that you can't do. <laughs> oh, hi, Mika. It's so nice to uh, finally take the time to have this conversation with you after all the different chat we had. So no, everything is there. I, um, I'll, I'll maybe explain the, the logic behind this because it doesn't necessarily look very logical on paper, my career. So I'd love to explain a little bit why I've made those decisions. We would love that. We would love that. And just to say that you came on earlier in the year and we did an IGTV live where we gave some really fantastic tips for all humans, but mostly for women to think about how they can find pleasure, orgasm, climax, or just be deeper in their relationship, sexual relationship with themselves. And during the IGTV live, I was like, Chloe, I just want to hear your story. I want to hear your story. So tell me how it started. How did you end up in the entrepreneurial space? Did you grow up thinking, that's what I want to do? I want to start businesses. So no, I didn't. And I, um, I still, even before starting Kama, you know, never really thought of myself as a, as a CEO. I never had the dream to lead a company. I always felt as a both creative and commercial person, the collaborative nature of organizations always been the one that served me best. I love working alongside people. So it was never an intent and also, I didn't think I had the confidence or the belief that this is something that uh, I was able to do. I think as I was going towards this, what I think is my last entrepreneurial journey, it actually took me many years to agree with myself to do this and to become the sole leader of a business, which I had never been in a position to do before. So it was a big step. And it took me years to decide for myself that I was actually fit to have and to, you know, to be in that role. So it wasn't something very intuitive and it wasn't something that I had planned. It happened as things happen in life. You know, I was an architect first. I worked for Norman Foster for almost 10 years. I had, you know, already a boy at the time and I was pregnant with my second son and just felt I can't be on a building site anymore with a huge belly. I just can't do it anymore. I want to change my lifestyle, architecture. And especially if you think about, the way we used to work, you know, not so long ago, work was the only thing you were allowed to talk about at work. And no one was interested in your life balance and no one is interested even in your family life. You know, all they wanted to know is that you're going to be the best, most committed professional to whatever was given to you as an opportunity. 
And so I had worked very, very hard for many years and felt, why don't I change and go into something more entrepreneurial thinking it would be more flexible? I actually truly believed <laughs> that if I went into the tech sector and do whatever I was hearing people who are doing startups and just sounded like such a flexible environment <laughs> for your mother, uh, little did I know, of course, that uh, you know it's, it's not quite like that. But that's actually why I decided to make the change. I wanted better balance in my life. And a bit like you, with this particular project, I, I had a deep, deep rooted feeling that I needed to do this myself, the happy vagina. I was very frightened, actually. I like hiding behind people and having other people that are helping me make decisions. And of course, we do have people around us that are helping us enormously. But I really identify with that kind of coming through where you just kind of had to get on and do it on your own. And it was 15 years ago that you first started thinking about karma, which is obviously within the sexual wellness space. We're going to talk loads about that, but I do want to just go a little bit back to made.com because one of the things that you've been very brave to talk about is that you, in your words, had a, a bit of a breakdown towards the end of that experience, that, that, that role within made.com. And I wonder, you know, what happened for you and Primarily, I wonder whether or not at that stage in your life as a woman, as a younger woman, because you had three male co-founders, mm. were you trying to prove something or do you think it was just the work ethic? You know, I don't think I was uh, trying to prove something. I was uh, very determined to be in business for the right reasons. And it really mattered to me that we were offering an opportunity for the mainstream to have access to quality design when very often we think that the masses don't need, you know, certain standards of quality or aesthetics because they don't care as much. And I always found that just a very unsatisfying statement to only care for the people who have the chance to be educated and appreciate things. You know, I think that education is the single most important factor of our positive evolution. We know this in all places when we don't have it. And so actually, I just really wanted to do the right thing. And it's hard, you know, to be commercially viable and yet to be able to still celebrate and promote, you know, let's say young designers who are not yet, you know, don't have yet the, the, the reputation on which you can, you can invest in. A lot of retailers will choose names already established to do their collaborations because it's such a big risk in retail. When you collaborate with someone, you have to produce everything, put a campaign together, put stocks in all the stores. So when you get it wrong, it's a disaster. So we were very determined to use the opportunity that we had at MADE to start bringing to the surface this really large pool of young designer who just had no route to market for their talent because there's so many creative, you know, curriculum that one can do, but often the challenge is how does that become a profession? How does we, do we make money from our passion? And so for me, it really was marrying some of the things I was very, very passionate about, which is that talent is everywhere to be found, but it does need a conduit in order for the masses to have access to that talent. And so for me, the idea of that platform was really meeting an educational opportunity for the masses to, to learn about good design and what quality brings into your life and then have young designer have a route to market for their product and actually creating something that would really puzzle together in a very neat way. And the challenge that I had, and I think, you know, this was a very healthy challenge. It drove me to uh, insanity at some point because I wasn't equipped. I had never done this before. Every single things I did, I made, like everything I did in every single job I had, I did it for the first time. One of the things I enjoyed the most about working is learning. And it's like a, a form of fuel or drug. You know, I, if I learn every day, I know that my mind is more plastic and is more aware. So it's always been my choice to go into things I don't know. But of course, you know, business like Made, which grew very quickly, we were very quickly, very exposed. I also relatively quickly became, I guess, the face for the brand because I was the only woman and I had a really beautiful home and I had uh, children. And I think a lot of the people buying those products, as we know, in female entrepreneur community, one of the interesting 
gap is that the customer are all women, but the percentage of women in business in, in startup is still very small. So there is definitely, for me, a realization that actually I was the person they wanted to hear from. And this gave me the confidence that I had something to say because no one ever asked me before, you know, what I thought. So suddenly I started to become a little bit more rounded also as a professional, starting to understand that the reason I do things and what I put into my work is also what connects with people and having clarity around my intention and why I'm here and what matters to me is also what will connect the customer, especially at a time where, you know, brands were changing their approach to building an audience. You know, we started to talk about communities as an audience and how that requires a conversation between, you know, a brand and a person rather than campaign messages, which are basically talking at you, not with you. So that shift was happening at the time. Facebook was becoming a platform for brands to become more known. So there was a lot of changes that happened. It was a big learning. And, you know, in the course of those six years, you know, 2010, when we launched the business, 2015, when I left, I had burned a lot of my resources. I was just exhausted physically, emotionally. I think that I also was able as, as the, the first of the founders to realize that founders have to really recognize when they're no longer serving the business in the way that they did early stages. The qualities which are required of a founder when the business is not to two years are wholly different from what's needed in a business when the business is 50 people and over up to 200 people, you know, which is kind of what it was when I left. So I just didn't want to be in a big business. You know, I was managing other people's creativity and I just decided that it was too much and I needed to step down and take a breath, which is what I did. I decided to, you know, move away from the business and reassess what I wanted to do next. What did you do to take care of yourself in that time? What were your kind of favorite things that you found to, to, or was it just slowing down? Was that enough, just taking time out? Do you know, the first thing was detecting that something was seriously wrong, uh, because that's the first real shift that happened. I think what happened for the longest time is that as we are, my experience, getting unwell mentally, the first thing we do is push it away. It's fine. It's fine. I keep going. It's fine. You know, I've never had any issues, so I'm thinking you know, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. So you end up actually making it much worse because you are not recognizing early enough that you need to stop. So I didn't stop. So by the time I did stop, I actually sent myself into a clinic (laughs) to get better because I was not able to do it for myself. I would come home in the evening and be in my home and realizing I was on my own and needed to leave and do something. I, I never felt like this before and I don't feel like this now. I've always enjoyed loneliness very, very much. So I knew at that point, something, this was the trigger for me to realize something was wrong. So I actually went to this pretty incredible place in Alicante, Spain called Sha, the Sha oh, yeah. Clinic. I know. It changed my life in a sense. You know, yeah. it was the first step I took to say I need help. It took me on a 10 day journey from a place where I would literally not be able to function. I would be a little bit like a zombie, you know, sitting down and waiting for things to happen to going through this series of days of treatment and understanding things about my system. They talk a lot about the macrobiotic diet and this idea of the yin and the yang and that our system is constantly trying to go back to homeostasis, which is the neutral point in the middle. And if you look at food and activities as a line that has extreme on both ends, we try to go back to the middle. The system, the brain, everything in our system is trying to constantly balance out all of those extremes that we put ourselves through and then make us feel balanced. And when I realized how many things in my life I was doing to stretch my system, I realized very quickly and was able to visualize and understand where I was. And I think this for me was the first really clear sign that well-being is about being able to heal yourself. And by this, I mean knowing that we have that power in ourselves to impact our well-being, the way that we feel physically, mentally, by shifting something in ourselves. And it's not always a professional or a third party or doctor that can give you the answer. And that's the difference between health and well-being. And I think well-being has been 
almost maybe even purposely, you know, not explored because health is a very commercial, you know, avenue where you have complete dependency on the service that you receive and you don't learn much about yourself. You know, your, your medical record is still not actually personalized today and owned by the individual. So there was a really big separation between your health and where that knowledge sits. And so I started to realize that well-being was a way for me to understand myself primarily knowing what's happening in my system, what I do impact the internal aspect of my life. And in these 10 days, the other thing that happened that was kind of led me to where I am today was I started working with this meditative guide called Stuart Bold, who was the first meditation professional who brought uh, meditation to the NHS for purpose of helping people post-trauma uh, in case of you know, deep burns, for example. So people that have had suffer a huge amount of pain and using mindfulness with those environments as a way to actually facilitate their recovery. And with him, I learned something phenomenal that completely changed the way that I understand meditation and mindfulness is that the point of meditation is not to be able to meditate or sit with yourself, not move and not think. Meditation is a state of being. Being in a meditative state just means that you are present at as many times as you can during the day. And so he taught me what we call effortless mindfulness, which is how you can be mindful every moment of the day. So for example, now I'm talking to you When I'm thinking about doing a little mindfulness practice, I connect to the vibration of my voice and I start feeling where it's resonating in my body. That simple little switch in how I connect to the moment and to my body is actually making me mindful because now my mind is not just in my brain thinking about what I'm going to say. My mind is Mm. somewhere in my body. And mindfulness simply means the mind is everywhere, is full. The mind is feeling the entire system, not just in my thoughts where I put all my energy, but I can be as aware of my toe, of my leg, of my stomach, of my shoulders than I have of my thoughts. And that's mindfulness, this ability to spread your attention away from the brain. Mm. Yeah, it's like an even a deeper version. There's always been this this, uh, expression that it's a two-way communication system, right? That your body listens to your mind and your mind listens to your body. However, when you start to drop into it being a whole thing, that everything happens at the same time, and that to be present with everything all at the same time actually allows us to not be so in our heads rather than kind of it being a split thing. Okay, now I'm going to get into my body. It's like, let it be present everywhere all of the time. Yeah, it's very hard to do because we've designed a society that takes us away from that connection, right? So we are hyper-stimulated and we also have an environment that desensitizes us. So as a result of this, that connection you're talking about, that should be very natural, doesn't happen Mm. anymore. The mind-body connection for most people doesn't exist. Most people don't even know what it's like to be in their body. I spent the biggest part of my life believing I was a very embodied mm. person because I love dancing and I feel comfortable mm. in myself just to realize after my first somatic mm. session, which is basically how the practitioners basically just simply touch areas of your body and ask you to bring your awareness to it, to realize mm-hmm. that actually every sensation I thought I was feeling, I was creating in my head and to realize that I was not embodied at all. And then mm-hmm. I had to start, you know, the training of really understanding what it means at neural level to have that connection, because it is not just an idea. It's not just a belief in certain energy power. It's actually a physical Mm. thing. There's a physicality in the psychosomatic working together. Everything that you said encapsulates all that karma is. Karma is a full body, full system, full energy, full universe, sexual wellness platform. And we're going to talk about it in a minute because I'm I'm pretty obsessed with it. Actually, I think it's really exquisite what you're doing, but on a, on a very technical day-to-day level, how are you making sure that you're looking after yourself within the business? Well, I mean, first, you know, remember that I raised the money. So I left Soul House in June 19. Finally, there was movement in this space, seeing a few companies starting to raise seed capital for a sexual wellness company. And interestingly, sexual wellness didn't exist as a category before, right? So it's actually the category that creates the opportunity. VC cannot invest 
in something that doesn't belong to a category because the category defines the market sizing, therefore this defines the opportunity. So before sexual wellness becoming the 13th category of the wellness sector, you couldn't even raise money with VCs anyway because sex was considered a vice industry. So there was no in. Sexual wellness created a new opportunity. So when I saw that, I immediately left Soul House and I went to raise some capital for, for this business. I put a deck together and raised some money and came back from the, from the States with almost $4 million. So a really, really, for me, first big, big sign of approval that actually, yes, there was a shift. That wasn't just, you know, early, early stage, but it was really some real interest towards this uh, sector. And then I got home to London and then a month later, the first lockdown stroke. So really, you know, the thinking I had made in the past, which was the primary reason why I had not started the business is how I'm going to create a healthy environment for myself and my team. So that mm. when we create something in the wellness space, it's not just an illusion mm. and the people on the inside are suffering or working too hard or don't have any form of a practice that they can follow also to help themselves. And so a lot of things had to be reconsidered in light of people working now in isolation, which added a lot of anxiety and stress on top of this newfound flexibility and freedom, a lot of people actually had a layer of anxiety that was covering it up. And a lot of people couldn't actually see the full benefit of this new lifestyle because so much also was not allowed and not possible. And all this incapacity to connect also, I think, increased issues around well-being. And we had so many journalists come to us asking us, you know, what are we seeing in the way that people are uh, leaving this change? And is it something that is helping people become more intimate and connected to themselves? Or actually, is it making them so anxious that they are even more dissociating from themselves? So we were very aware of the importance. Do you mean inviting people, your, your community and wider, to move into a more intimate relationship with themselves and lovers or friends? Or do you mean within the workspace, people were asking you how it was within your team? Generally, I think there was an interest around how were people uh, leaving this pandemic experience when it came to the relationship to the self. So is this helping us being confronted to ourselves falsely for once and not having the choice to escape? Is that going to eventually, you know, bear some fruits? And probably it has for some people and it has for me enormously, but it also has challenged a lot of people whose way of expressing and living life is by being around other people, which isn't my case, for example. I like isolation a lot as, as a choice of, of lifestyle. So some people it fitted, some people it didn't fit. And it's just trying to really understand where and how we can use this opportunity. And the way that I really felt something had to change in the way that I was organizing my life is actually the importance of routine and structure. The more space we have to be free, the more we need to create structure. If we do not do that, then it becomes a lost space. We get lost, you know, because usually we rely on structure and organization and people to help us with that structure is already invisible in a way we fit into it. So when you remove all of this, it gives you a sense of being a little bit loose mm. and, and not mm. knowing how to organize yourself. So we were very clear with the team and myself that we, we had practices as a routine and making sure that we were engaging with what we were creating and getting the team and the community to constantly test and evaluate and bring those new things into their life, whether it's a shake every time you feel anxious, which is this, you know, very simple practice that is used in hospital for years uh, when people have trauma, let's say after a shock or car accident, if they haven't, if they can still move and if they haven't anything broken, you basically shake your entire body the same way you see animals shake after they had a fright. Because what happens is when you're scared, your body releases some stress hormones to get you to move and react. But if you don't shake them, they'll sit in your system and they'll turn into something else like chronic pain and things like that. So something as simple as just shaking for 60 seconds, if someone has upsetted you or you get frustrated, you find a corner, now you're at home on your own and you shake. Even this can have a massive shift in the way that you are experiencing, you know, yeah, a mini trauma, big trauma, you know, it's constantly there. Or just your day, the end of your day, rather than picking up a glass of wine, have a good shake. There's a fantastic book on it, which is more about trauma, which is um, Waking the Tiger. 
Peter Levine, which is if anyone listening and wanted to read a little bit further, I'd say that's quite an interesting start to understand, you know, the missing element for us as human beings, that if you see an animal in the wild that's had a shock, it freezes until it knows it's safe. And then it shakes, right? To let go of the adrenaline, I guess, Chloe, it's the adrenaline it's letting go of. So interesting. Karma. (laughs) Let's talk about karma. So I was introduced to it by a mutual friend of ours, Jennifer Gray. Thank you, Jennifer Gray. Thank you, listening. Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> she said, you've got to look at what Chloe McIntosh is doing. It's really interesting. And obviously I was about six months into the Happy Vagina and I had had a few brands who I really adore in the female erotic pleasure expansion space that I'd had conversations with. And I started to look at what you were doing with Karma and I just found it really exciting. And it's because you're bringing all of the things that you've talked about through the first 20 minutes of this podcast into the sexual wellness space. So you're looking at sex. I love the fact that you're not talking about it as men and women. We're not exclusionary either, but we're definitely heavily focused on women at the Happy Vagina. (laughs) But, you know, you've done something really special in making sure that it's a platform that includes every single human sexual experience so that we can learn and grow together. And then the other thing around it is just that it's almost as though you draw on neuroscience, psychosexual therapy, somatic wellness, and ancient wisdom, and bring it all together to look at closing the orgasm gap. You know, much more complicated than that, but you've closed the furniture gap, and now you're closing the orgasm gap. (laughs) But I did read, Chloe, that you were first thinking about doing porn. Hmm. Is that right? Yes. What happened there? So a couple of things in what you said, which I've learned in my career. One is to go where the customer is already. <laughs> That's very important. Uh, hence the porn. And the second is that, you know, start with what's the most difficult. People make a mistake to start what's easiest. And so it made, everyone told me, we will never sell a sofa online like this. People have to sit on it. It will never happen. I had so many experts tell me it won't work. So what did we do? I spent the first year and a half just doing sofas. That's all I did. I refused to touch anything else until we could sell sofas and sofas became our best sellers. And the reason why the business took off. And this was a decision we made as a team because we could see that it has a high price point. It can give you longevity in terms of, you know, your investment. It's also something that people are kind of proud of. So it's actually very important to get right. So when my investors were saying to me, you should start with women because you're a woman, they will hear you and it's the easiest way to start. I thought first, I don't think it's the right approach. I don't see men and women as different. We're moving into a society which is, you know, Gen Z now are saying that 40%, more than 40% of them identify as non-binary. So we are shifting in a society where the binary structure of the way we've been thinking for a very long time is going to be very irrelevant. And the brands who do not understand that that's a profound shift. It's not about men and women. It's about the individual. It's about who you are and how you feel in your body. Today, maybe you want to be in your energetic male body and experience what it's like to have sex like a man. Maybe the next day you... To fuck. Yeah, to fuck like a man, exactly. Thank you for I mean, I'm generalizing. <laughs> of, course, of course, fucking is not just reserved for men. <laughs> but, you know, to have sex that would potentially historically and traditionally be reserved for a man. Yeah, and also because having two teenage boys, I think that everyone has to learn from the same slate, you know, and if we can create a new sexual uh, model, sorry, for sexuality, which is really what I'm trying to build here, I'm really thinking of building a methodology and a philosophy that will transform how we relate to sexuality forever. I know it's, it's like really ambitious, but I truly believe that with what I've discovered and also because we've done such a bad job at it so far, that it's going to be quite easy to make it better because actually we really have treated sexuality with so little respect in so many areas of our, you know, evolution, you know, whether it's been taken away from the connection to the divine through modern religion or the way it's uh, taught to young children who are being told that they're naughty or that they shouldn't or that the shame starts at that age to the way that we are not able to address it in the workplace. I mean, we are useless at sexuality. You know, we've got to a place where everything else seems to have evolved. But really, that hasn't. If anything, it's got worse. So 
when I say a new model for sexuality that can transform what we think and feel forever, I mean, it's really achievable to do this. It's really achievable to tell people that there are first a lot of common sense that happens when we get a proper education, which we don't get. So the, the primary mission for me is around education. So when I initially started about creating something in this space 15 years ago, and I was pregnant with my first son, and I was actually trying to inform myself, my initial trigger to search for answer was sex education. What happens in my body when I'm pregnant? Should I be having sex? What position? Why am I so horny? What's happening to me? You know, And so not finding that there was anything between a medical website that would give you mostly uh, information what, what not to do and the risk actually of sex and, and pornography, I realized there was a huge commercial opportunity in, in the middle there. It's not a middle, it's between two extremes. So it's actually a large space. And initially it was my entrepreneurial hat that actually thought about this. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. So I went through a series of ideas. And the first one was to think, well, 30% of the world's traffic still goes to porn, right? It's a, it's a lot of people. So I'm thinking, well, if that's the case, let's make porn that educates people and make them feel good about themselves. Simply. So sex the way it should really look like, except I didn't know what it looked like, by the way. See, if I had done it then, I would have got it completely wrong because I didn't know what I know now. So in a way, that was not the right idea. But I went through, you know, the usual ideation of, I didn't have the idea in this case, I saw the opportunity. The idea came 15 years of building and being patient with myself until I really thought I, I found what I needed to say. It took a long time. It just took a long time for me to get here. So to a certain extent, refining what gap you actually wanted to look at. Like it would have been easy. I mean, there's some TV shows around at the moment that are looking at sexual wellness and they're just going to bondage places. And I'm like, you know, it's just, I'm not, I'm not being neggy about it. It's just that, you know, that I don't think that's going to give us the sexual revolution that we need. And unless we have people like you who are talking about sex in, it's very deep what you're doing, you know, without wanting to sound trite, but your Instagram feed, the posts that you put on it, every time I see it, I'm like, oh, wow, that is really profound. Even things that I know and that I've forgotten. And of course, you know, that is to do with sex education at school and trauma and, you know, codependency and all the things that happen along the way for, for me as a woman. I've also grown as this journey's developed and I've learned to not be ashamed of where I was four years ago. You know, that actually it's really important to remember that it's okay to, to be where you are. So if, if, if this kind of deeper work is too much for you and you need to be at porn right now, as long as it's not coming up into an addictive space, then I think that's fine. And you, you recently said that you think only 5% of us reach our sexual potential. What do you, what's your target? Where would you like karma to be? I suppose one of my questions is, is Chloe, you've also said that there is a sexual recession going on. And I was like, that's weird. I feel like there's a sexual revolution. And I was like, or is it just on Instagram? Are we just in an echo chamber of people that are actually already open to this stuff? Like what needs to happen, Chloe, to get it out into the people who don't have any access to this way of thinking? I mean, in terms of, as I say, like the method and the model is pretty much we're basically getting to finalizing, finally getting all the pieces together. It's one of the most interesting research projects, the most interesting research project I ever, I ever had the chance to work on because it's, we're talking about the human experience. We're talking about changing the human experience as a whole because of the embodiment aspect of our life, which has been removed by way of creating status that is primarily centered about the cerebral and intellect. And this is white culture, cutting off the body and giving all the glory and, uh, you know, the focus around what are we able to do intellectually. If you look at other cultures, whether, you know, on the African continent or Latin America, the mind-body connection is much stronger part of the overall culture. You know, it's all its expression, whether it's in art or communication or design, you know, there's a very different relationship. So, the, the white culture has mutilated us away from that connection to the body because in that body, 
there is freedom. You know, in that body, there is a connection to the divine, is that's what we want. Then suddenly you become very self-sufficient and very independent and very individual. And those things are not necessarily what we look for when authorities are trying to, you know, create order in, in a society. So I truly believe that the, the true sexual evolution, not so much revolution that we are looking for, is one that makes us understand that the wisdom is in our body, the ability to really feel life and experience life for what it has to offer. It's a sensorial experience, not just a cerebral experience, and that there is a total lack of balance in where our focus is currently going, that we have desensitized ourselves from touch and smell and taste, and we have over-indexed in our eyes, defining the experience of life for us, which we need to remember that eyesight is yet the only sense that does not have a sensation associated to it. It's still an image you send to your brain. It's still a thought. And our entire world is defined by images, and it's not defined by sensation that we are able to connect to in the moment. Big part of what Kama tries to do is to help you repattern your nervous system with a sensitivity that will deliver to you the pleasure that is necessary for the balance of your system, because pleasure is actually our medicine. Pleasure is what we have built into the system to fight stress faster than anything else. That we have lost this ability to connect to pleasure. We have been told that it's because often pleasure and sexual pleasure have been put together. And we have told in many places I've just mentioned how it's not allowed and it's not something we should be proud of. And it's something that we should do once we've done everything else, except we are designed for pleasure. And all we think about is the suffering and avoiding the pain. And as we are not able to listen to ourselves when it sends us some signal that something might happen, we end up having to resolve problems when they are a lot bigger than they should be. And so well-being and building the connection to your body is also able to communicate between yourself, your mental state and your physical state. Are they working together so that you have a holistic experience of sex where you're not stuck in your head, you know, or of life in general, where you're not projecting what you think you think or what people think you're doing, or, but you are actually able to feel, you know, in, in real time. And that disconnection is actually the only thing that needs to change. When we start feeling in the body, then everything else will, will come naturally. And do you think this needs to be something that is brought into sexual education with children at home and at school or maybe just at home? I've read that you speak to your young teenage boys very openly about these things, as do many women I know. I think it's really important and a huge seismic shift in the way that we were raised, right? I mean, I wasn't raised like that. We didn't talk about sex at all, other than kind of as a I don't know, some kind of jokey way or, you know, hiding from kissing, watching movies with my parents when I was a teenager. It was like embarrassing, you know, such a weird thing to learn. What do you think about young people? Is that where we need to start? You know, we need to start when we deliver babies and how we give birth. You know, there is a way you can have a birth that is using your pleasure system as, as an instrument. So there's a lot of things we need to change here. It's not a communication piece at home. It's an entire new system of understanding of the importance of the connection to sexuality as this is where life comes from. You know, we were designed that life comes out of sexuality, could have come out of different things that we do. It comes this way. And so what we forget often is that sexuality is our life force, is the energy that we can actually create in our system. The only energy we can self-create is sexual energy, which is why it was called life force in ancient wisdom. All the other energies we consume, if we do not learn to build positive energy ourselves within ourselves, we will never be able to heal ourselves and solution ourselves. We're always going to be pulling we're going to take a very quick ad break. And before we do, I wanted to let you know that this podcast was produced in association with Albright, the leading career network for women. Got a mission, a five-year plan, or an outrageous dream, 
Albright will have your back. They had mine. Visit www.albrightcollective.com to join their free community today or download the Albright app available in the App Store. Albright, a global sisterhood for ambitious women. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But what do you mean about the pleasure? Can you say a bit more about that, about we can use our pleasure system to give birth? I've never heard that before. Yeah, you know, orgasmic birth. So when you have uh, orgasms, the contraction that happens in your in your. Uh, pelvic floor, which are the muscles that support your vital organs, but also responsible for the orgasmic state and orgasmic feelings. These are the same muscles that contract when you deliver a baby. So there are ways that we can, uh, and it's something that I discovered way, way after I had children. If I was pregnant now, I will have a very, very different view as to how to, you know, lead my pregnancy and make the, the, the choices of, of birth. And so you know, we talk about ecstatic birth or orgasmic birth, or so simply birth where the connection to the body and the connection to what's happening and working with our body and, and really understanding very clearly what's happening rather than being numb down, you know, and basically disconnected entirely from this incredible life experience. And I'm not saying this is for everyone. And I'm not saying everyone needs to have neither the courage or the intention to have any form of pain when they do this kind of process. I totally respect the people who choose not to go for those avenues. But when you ask me when it can change the narrative, the narrative really needs to change around pain and pleasure. And the fact that they are two sides of the same coin. It is often where we have the most pain that of course we're the most sensitive, therefore we can have the most pleasure. You know, a big part of uh, the Kama practice is uh, called resensitization. And this is about resensitizing your body and also your genitals by basically using intention, touch and breath as a way to indicate to your system that at local level, when you touch yourself, it may be pain. Me, I had a lot of pain, you know, at the, at the pee hole, for example. Very, very painful for me. And I believed it's the pee hole. Of course, it's painful, should never be touched. Of course, makes sense. It's not supposed to be sexual. It's to be, right? So I left it like this for a long time until being told that, no, actually, those areas should never have any pain whatsoever. It should always feel like butter and there should be no pain whatsoever. And as we know from a research, you know, one in three women would actually declare that they had pain the last time they had sex. So pain is a big part of sexual experience, even if it's a little bit or more. And how many times we bypass the pain, we basically tell the system, I don't care about the pain, let's just go through it. So the system has this kind of mini local contraction, which is the fascia, which is the connective tissue that's around everything contracts. And that's his pain. And then later it'll become numbness. So when we don't pay attention to those areas and we don't actually try to resensitize them by telling the system, I actually don't need the pain here anymore, this can turn into pleasure, then we can turn pain into pleasure. We can turn numbness into pleasure and we can start feeling more. And when we feel more, then mm. it's very easy to stay present. Mm. When you don't have mm. any feelings, it's very hard to stay there. But if you have mm -hmm. a lot of sensation, then suddenly you can build this orgasmic state, which is not about the orgasm. Like, I don't think I'm, I will hopefully close the, some of the orgasm gap, but a lot of what we do is also focusing more on the journey and letting people know that sex that lasts for hours 
can have just one orgasm at the end and that's okay. Like there is a type of sex that you can have where there's so much pleasure when you're doing it that the orgasm doesn't even come to place anymore. You don't even think about it. Yes. Yes. Before moving on to the orgasm gap in women, I just am having this like brilliant vision of women in the future giving birth while someone's stimulating their clitoris. I'm, I'm, I'm all <laughs> on board for that. Uh, <laughs> but coming back to the orgasm gap, of course, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting around female orgasm and speaking to women in our community is that the gap lies mostly in the fact that women feel ashamed of how long potentially it takes them to orgasm. And as you've just said, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't be the focus and it can take as long as it needs to. But I think one of the other things that I really appreciate with the work you're doing is that men have also been taught, Chloe, that for them, sex is about, you know, about an orgasm too. And because ostensibly you could say it's easier for a man, we've got this kind of juxtaposition where women, so many women I know feel ashamed about how long it takes them to climax, um, if at all. And then you've got men who ostensibly have learned through the movies and porn and their mates when they were growing up that actually while they may want to be a good lover and, and last longer, they've still got the focus on the orgasm. It's like we need men to kind of take the focus off the orgasm as well to meet us where we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the thing with men, and of course, you know, the majority of men are well-intended and actually really take a lot of pleasure in making the other person feel a lot because I think it flatters their ego and because it's really nice to give pleasure. So... One of the big, big kind of issues around sex is the lack of communication. We don't give each other's feedback. You know, so women are guilty of not giving feedback and actually even sometimes faking, which only reinforce bad behavior. And men are guilty of not asking enough. How does that feel? Do you want more? Should we continue? Never. You never get asked the question, right? So the first thing you can do, my method, the one I try to tell my girlfriend, is that, you know, first... Foreplay starts as soon as you're not having sex. So make sure that the sexual tension and your own arousal stay at a high, mid-high level so that when it comes to becoming intimate, you don't end up with what we have mismatch arousal, which couples talk a lot about, which is one person is ready and the person isn't ready, which means that the time it's going to take them to climax is also the time they have to get engorged and ready for it, right? Because they're catching up on the whole preparation time. So a woman's responsibility or person who is a vulva, their responsibility could be self-generated arousal practice every day for five minutes to just keep the juices going and also realizing for themselves that desire is a very big misunderstanding in our, in our little sector here, because we think that desire is what drives you towards sex and that men have a lot of that and women uh, are less able to know when or how it might come or not come and sometimes suffer from loss of desire. Well, desire or at least arousal, so the desire to have sex, is also a physical experience that can be triggered mechanically through a breath work and pelvic floor training. Me, I can get myself in a state of wanting to have sex just because I'm turned on through the breath work. I have no fantasy in mind. I'm not thinking about the way it's going to happen. I just have a really a lot of heat in my system going, now let's work with this, right? So giving women the power to realize that they can totally self-generate this and they can be as wanting to have sex as anyone else in the room and that we need to stop thinking that men and women are different in that way because I think it's a construct of society. Is because men enjoy sex more because the kind of sex we have designed correspond to their pleasure. But if we had sex that designed for women's pleasure, I tell you, they'll be at it as just as much as the guys. So that's the first thing I'd like to say. The second thing with the orgasm, which is uh, problematic, is that in the, you know, the work of Sigmund Freud, the kind of pleasure, you know, anatomy and how should women experience pleasure. And in particular, Sigmund had concluded that the true orgasm, you know, the one that had the, the value of, of sexuality was internal and that clitoral orgasm was kind of secondary and done for masturbation and, and made to this point a lot of shame amongst ourselves, thinking 
I, I couldn't find my G-spot. I never had an internal orgasm, let alone a lot of internal pleasure. So I, until I did the work to find it and realize everyone has one, and so do I, I believe that was kind of inadequate. You know, I believe that I didn't have something that I could have that would change the way that I experienced sex and that could give more pleasure to my partner. And I just didn't have that. And that's 80% of women. Because we haven't changed the way we have sex, we still don't have internal pleasure. Now, we're going to be launching a course later this year, which is typically exactly focused on bringing internal pleasure into the female system and making them understand that all of the things that men have, the erection, the intensity, the thrusting, they have that too. All those structures are the same, you know, uh, they start from the same place and then they separate in, in the, the, the different bodies. And ultimately there is a map by which things should happen. And because our anatomy is such an evolved system, millions of years of evolution has given us this complex, you know, CUV complex, the uh, kind of clitoral, ethereal, vaginal complex, which is this in interconnected set of structures. Complex, yes, but also a lot of opportunity when we find the keys. Yeah, I mean, it's huge as well. Recently, I just uh, watched, because Gwyneth has just been on the podcast, and when she saw the full size of the clitoris, she said, holy shit, <laughs> which I thought was a very accurate. <laughs> yeah, and it's not just the clitoris. The clitoris it's wrap. It's the, like a penis. It's just yeah. that it's this way rather than this way. Yeah, and also the urethra uh, system, which is responsible for squirting, is an absolutely essential part of our pleasure system. And if we don't understand how to connect to that being sensation and to get over that block that we are going to be releasing fluids, then women will not have access to that internal pleasure. So when the media and porn puts squirting in this particular frame of a bit of a party trick and this you know, quite aggressive and vulgar way that it's been expressed, it also moves that out of people like me. I didn't feel I had permission to even go there. I mean, I was like, why would I even do that? You know, so it again took me some realization, understanding, education. And now I realize, oh my God, it's such a big part of why women are not experiencing internal pleasure. Because when they are not squirting, they are not erecting the internal tissues and then you can't have the kind of pleasure that is available there because of that. Right. The full orgasm, essentially. The full climax. Yeah. yeah. But also thinking about the cervix and another area that we don't talk about, which for me has become my primary area of uh, you know, pleasure now. And uh, you know, I was told the cervix is where you deliver baby. You don't touch it, don't approach it. You know, Well, it so happened to be a very, very important part of the potential for internal pleasure for people that have a vulva. And it also creates a lot of different kind of effect for the person who's receiving that. It's so interesting, isn't it, Chloe? Because, you know, I, I have experienced enjoyment through having my cervix touched. And I know that that's something I enjoy. But when you say it, I just notice that my brain goes into smear test trauma. Like people scratching my cervix to get cells off. And it just really, you know, just coming back to complete on everything that you've said, it just shows us how far we are from deeply understanding our bodies as these actually highly intelligent, exquisite, exquisite things. But thankfully, we've got you leading the charge for us. And we are really grateful for the work that you're doing at Karma. You know that. I think it's really exciting. And I, and I love the fact that you're taking it wide you know, this is a wide thing for everyone to be involved in. And I know that it's been a very personal mission for you. We're going to end with a few personal questions. I just wondered, since starting Karma, how has your sexual wellness been enhanced? Are you still looking after yourself, Chloe, as the founder of a new business? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think that's the beautiful uh, discovery is that how many aspects of our life can get better when we resolve this within ourselves, which has been a trauma, not just for us, but for generation, you know, in, in our past. So I am now very, very good at um, making choices, which allow me to develop in that area. 
communicating what I want, um, continuing to explore. Curiosity is a very, very important component of discovery and pleasure. So there are some elements in the equation of pleasure that are very important. You know, one is to make the time and commit to doing your practice. So instead of doing your self-pleasure practice or your masturbation as a quick fix to a moment of anxiety or stress, use masturbation as a training ground for great sex. And that's definitely the first thing. I would say the second is to resensitize your senses. So when you eat, when you drink, you know, do a little, take a moment to really see how much you can get from that, even if it's a glass of water, because that will program your system to believe there's pleasure everywhere. And that creates this awareness that we are in a pleasure state and we're looking for more pleasure and the, the neural pathway just imprint much faster. And I would say, actually, those two things, you know, are for me, two things you need to do is do your practice and be present with your senses. That's the daily practice. It's five minutes each and it changes everything. A bit of pelvic floor training would be good. <laughs> and if women, I'm going to stick with women, if women do five minutes a day, will they find it easier to become aroused with their partner? Does the, is the knock-on effect of that, that, that one's arousal desire libido starts to open up and be more present so that they have access, they can access it? I would say definitely libido, uh, sex drive, but also lubrication. You know, mm. when you do your physical training with your breath, your your mm. the, everything starts moving. So it also keeps anything to do with voice training with the vagus nerve is going to communicate as well to the pelvic floor. There's a lot of dual communication we can create where we're not doing anything sexual, but we are working with the sexual system. And that's what Kama is all about. We're going to give you lots of tips and tricks, how to give the best blowjob and have a great time while you do it. But we're also just going to remind you that you are practicing sexuality every moment of the day, if that is your choice, and you can do it without anyone noticing because it's also stuff that's inside anyway. Mm-hmm. And as and as you are such a phenomenal founder, something that I was recently told was that orgasms actually enable... Now, this could be something that you say, where did you get that from, Mika? But that um, promotions at work, that, you know, that just kind of being well in the space of sexuality actually enables us to have successes, whatever that means for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to go and start their own sexual wellness platform, but you know, it's just, just that I think orgasms and pleasure and climax and being a sexual being makes us much weller outside in the world. And also if we get rid of the repression, so much of the traumas that we hear about that go on, I think would be gone. Absolutely. And I, you know, trauma, as we know, leaves a, a lot in the body. So any embodiment practice that has intentional, you know, to it will actually help you with eliminating and cleansing of that. You can do it daily. Me, I do a little abdominal massage to myself before I go to bed. It just releases, you know, extra stuff, one shake, one of these, this, you've already managed to get rid of a bunch of stuff that otherwise simply accumulates. So orgasm, like crying, like is a release. It's built into the system for us to unplug and, and release everything. So if we don't use the tools which we are given as a way to make the system operate optimally, then we're not going to be having optimal. So you're absolutely right. Once you start doing these things, a whole other thing starts to happen outside of the bedroom around making better choices because now I'm in contact with myself, my desire, what feels good. So I'm going to go towards what feels good and I'm going to call in also what feels good and the people that are more on my frequency. That totally happens, you know, when you start practicing that way. The way you speak about yourself is more assertive because you know what you want. So yes, getting a job or being able to get promotions or being able to get what you want is going to become better. And the more you communicate this in the bedroom as a training ground, the more mm. you're going to start forming some mm. confidence to do so outside. So this just literally, I think if actually all we learned about was everything through sexuality, we probably get a full education anyway. So we should be starting with sexuality, shouldn't we? I've got one last question for you. What does pleasure mean for you today? at the moment, Chloe? Uh, being present. I think that all of the things we hear and, and it's all about, we have to be present to heal ourselves. The secret of it all is presence. And then we have a whole bunch of meditation app that basically teach you to be present by sitting still 
and not moving and, and not thinking. And that's like the hardest thing to do. So pleasure is a really easy and fun way to be present and be mindful and resolve your anxiety and stress. So I think it's just the best medicine <laughs> and it's free. <laughs> All hail pleasure. All hail pleasure. We need to amplify pleasure, 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 pleasure. It's been such an honor speaking to you. You know, I've said we, we're a huge fan of the work you're doing. Keep going and anything that we can do to support you, please let us know, Chloe. Thank you, Mika. Thank you. I want to say really for the, you know, when we first talked, you completely got it in one way that you told me why you were, we were, you know, talking to each other. And it was one of the reinforcing moments that we're doing something right, because sometimes you get lost, you know, knowing or not where you're going. So for that, I'm very, very grateful. Yeah, you're extraordinary. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you. I'm Mika Simmons. That was Karma founder Chloe McIntosh. This is the Happy Vagina podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next week. And don't forget to visit Bondara, one of the UK's leading sex toy retailers with over 4,000 products to explore, all discreetly delivered to your door. You're sure to find what you desire at bondara.co.uk. Bondara for breathtaking orgasms and more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 